Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trial stemming from the tragic death of Ahmad Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. With verdicts of guilty rendered against the three defendants, we continue our complete coverage of the trial from gavel to gavel. Over the course of our last 13 episodes, we broke down each attorney's closing argument in this trial, including Prosecutor Linda Dunikowski's rebuttal closing. In this episode, we discuss the subtext and efficacy of those closings with Georgetown Law Professor, MSNBC analyst, and one of the nation's most frequently consulted scholars on issues of race and criminal justice, Paul Butler. That's coming up right after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Paul Butler, thank you again for joining us today. Hey, Carrie, it's great to be here. Today we're going to be talking about the closing arguments, and we're going to begin with Prosecutor Linda Dunikowski. Carrie, first let me say that Ms. Dunikowski presented a masterful closing argument and rebuttal. I'm confident that in trial advocacy workshops, those last presentations to the jury will be studied. She showed us how it's done. So she explained how the evidence that was presented at trial related to the jury instructions on Georgia law, especially as Georgia law relates to citizens' arrest and to self-defense. It was just a meticulous accounting of the evidence. She also told a compelling story about the tragic, agonizing, last moments of Mr. Arbery's life. The courtroom cameras were not allowed to show jurors, but I'll bet some of them were in tears. And Ms. Dunikowski dirtied up the defendants. This is a murder trial, and prosecutors want the jurors to feel some righteous anger when they go in that room to deliberate. And that refrain What's your emergency? There's a black man running down the street. So that was her invocation of race, but it wasn't just once during the closing. She also repeated that uh, throughout her rebuttal. It was kind of a refrain, and I think it was also kind of a cold. You know, Carrie, we were talking offline about what we've learned as we've done this deep dive into this case. And I think one of the things that I've learned is that maybe I don't know white people as well as I thought I did. I feel like I know African-Americans pretty well. And by that, I mean, if I am a litigator in a case with a 
African-American jury or many Black jurors, I kind of know what to say, how to do, how to persuade. At least I think I do. And I thought I did with non-Black jurors as well. But the prosecution in this case made some decisions about race that were quite specific and I think specific to this jury with 11 out of 12 people white. And one of those decisions was to talk in code. So the prosecutor's calculus seemed to be that there was something about race that was important to invoke, but it couldn't be too heavy-handed. And so the prosecutor had fought a battle to get Travis McMichael's license plate available, admitted into evidence. And it was significant because this license plate had an emblem of the Confederate flag, or as some people would be quick to point out, it was the former Georgia state flag that had the emblem of the Confederate flag on it. And after that battle, the prosecution didn't even use that evidence. And maybe it was because with these 11 white jurors from rural Georgia, some of them might have some, I can't even say fond feelings about the Confederate flag because that's completely out of my realm of of human experience. But maybe some of these folks weren't or wouldn't have been offended by it or not seen it as racist or relevant and in fact might have been put off because even if they don't display this flag, maybe some of the people they care about do. So it's a long-winded way of saying that as a prosecutor, as a defense attorney, as an advocate in the courtroom, you have to know your audience, you have to know your jury, and in understanding what it would take to get a conviction in a case like this from 11 white people and one black person, I think the prosecutor, the prosecutors demonstrated that they knew their audience. Prosecutor Dunikowski seemed to focus a great deal on what Ahmad Arbery was actually doing in Larry English's home in the, as we've called it, the under construction site. And in so doing, she didn't really paper over it. She didn't whitewash it. She was clear that Ahmad Arbery was in that house without permission. She was also quick to add that he was at worst guilty of criminal trespass, which is a misdemeanor. And in combination with the comment by prosecutor Larissa Olivier to one of the neighborhood witnesses where she asked, do you think that theft deserves the death penalty? She seemed to be acknowledging the kind of worst case scenario. Take me through your sense of her strategy in the way that she dealt with what Ahmad Arbery may or may not have been doing in that Satilla Shores neighborhood on February 23rd as she was speaking in code as you say, to the jurors? So, Carrie, first she would say that you said it wrong, 
you bought into the defense. It wasn't a house. It was a construction site. That's what she was careful to call it throughout the trial. And I thought that that was very effective. We have in the Constitution and in society a special protection that homes get. And the defense was careful to play up the the racial dimensions of home. And we talked weeks ago about a suggestion from the defense that what if some white woman had been in this, the defense called it a home, and black Mr. Arbery had come along. And of course, they didn't say white or black, but that's what they meant. And so I think it was a canny strategic decision uh, not to call it a home, but to acknowledge that it was private property. And Mr. Arbery had been there on several occasions. He wasn't alone and trespassing. There had also been sightings of groups of white teenagers, another white couple. It's a construction site. People come through. Why? I don't know. Why was Mr. Arbery there? I don't know. What we do know is that he wasn't stealing from the house because the homeowner said that nothing was gone. I made the mistake too. What we do know is that Mr. Arbery was not stealing from that construction site. Uh, The homeowner said that nothing had been taken. But in a self-defense case, what you do is to dirty up the victim. And when you have a young black man who's the victim, that's not all that hard to do because you can summon up stereotypes about black male criminality. So I think the prosecution was trying to diffuse those stereotypes by saying what I just said. Look, he was here a few times. We don't know what he was doing. We don't know what other people who ventured on the site were doing. Uh, We do know that Mr. Arbery was not stealing. At most, he was trespassing. And when that other prosecutor made that statement to the court, well, should you get the death penalty for unlawful entry? Any lawyer could have told you that a judge would go apeshit. Sometimes that's a a risk that you take. If there's something that you want the jury to know about, we could have another discussion about strategy versus ethics, the scale of the harm, not such a big deal to me in this case. But I do think that that was purposeful. You know, it's funny because in this trial and the Rittenhouse case that was going on at the same time, a lot of non-lawyers really focused on when the judge yelled at the prosecutor or the defense attorneys. A lot of skilled advocates would say that if you go through a whole trial and the judge doesn't yell at you at some point, you're not zealously representing your client. So even though the judge did go off when the prosecutor made that comment about the death penalty, I think that it was strategic and that it it did the work that it was supposed to do. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One of the critical moments for Prosecutor Donikowski that she seized was her success in getting the judge to very narrowly define the time frame that a person can execute a lawful and warrantless citizen's arrest. And can you take me into her closing arguments framing of the citizen's arrest law before the Georgia law was repealed? When the judge instructed the jury on the Georgia citizen arrest law, the defense complained that Based on the way the judge explained the law, the judge was directing a verdict of conviction. And I guess you could blame the judge. You could just as well blame the Georgia law, which even with its tragic background in slave catching, still doesn't allow any old private citizen to do any old thing in enforcing the law. And what the judge explained was that if people were making an arrest through this law, they either had to see the crime go down themselves or be in a position that the law sometimes calls hot pursuit. That is that they had to be on the trail of someone who they had just seen commit a crime. And the McMichaels had all this testimony from Travis and from other witnesses that they'd seen Mr. Arbery in this house and had thought that he was committing a crime or had suspected it. But on the day that they killed him, uh, they didn't have any reason to think that he had committed a crime that day. And in fact, he had not. And when they were hunting him down, They never told him why they were trying to get him to stop. They never said that day to him or the cops anything about a a citizen's arrest. And since the linchpin of their defense was that they were lawfully entitled to stop Mr. Arbery and detain him because they had constitutional grounds to arrest him, if that wasn't the case, then In a sense, the verdict was directed. And that's because in Georgia, as in most places, how to claim self-defense if you started the fight, if you were what the law calls the initial aggressor. And if the McMichaels and Mr. Bryant didn't have any lawful reason to confront Mr. Arbery, that means that they were the aggressors, and that Mr. Arbery had the right to defend himself. So even to the extent that they could claim to the jury that Mr. Arbery was trying to grab Travis's gun, or even more absurdly, hit Mr. Bryant's car with his body, I guess, since he wasn't driving, none of that counts as justifiable self-defense on their part to repel what they claim Mr. Arbery was doing if they started the fight, if they provoked the encounter. And the judge's instruction 
on citizen's arrest really left the jury with few options of acquitting on either the false arrest charge or the the murder charge, either malice murder or felony murder. And I should say, when I say few options other than to convict, I should note that a jury has the power to acquit, to find not guilty. And even if that verdict is not consistent with the evidence that was presented at trial, there's nothing that a judge or an appellate court can do because in our criminal legal system, if there's a verdict of not guilty, the prosecution doesn't get to appeal. That verdict is final, uh, no matter what the evidence that was presented at trial says. The defense, on the other hand, can appeal if there's a conviction that's not supported by the evidence. And when I was suggesting that the judge's instruction to the jury on citizens' arrest left them, the jurors, with little choice other than to convict. In fact, jurors always have acquittal, not guilty, as an option. When they do that, and that verdict of not guilty goes against the evidence, and the jurors know that. It's called jury nullification. So nullification was always a possibility with this jury. It has a long, tragic history in the South in cases with facts like this. And it certainly seems to be something that the defense was going for, hoping for. But at the end of the day, I think this jury decided this case based on the overwhelming evidence that was presented by the prosecution. That seems like a good segue into the defense closing statements. Let's start with Jason Sheffield, the attorney arguing on behalf of Travis McMichael. Sheffield's metaphor that he closed his closing statement with was hearkening to Travis McMichael's service in the Coast Guard. And he suggested that he and his legal team, their case had taken Travis McMichael out of choppy waters and it was now up to the jury to lift him to safety. What did you make of Jason Sheffield's closing argument and the tone and tenor of it? And did you think it was an implicit appeal for jury nullification because Travis McMichael was more like the 11 people on that jury than Ahmaud Arbery was? I think that Travis McMichael's lawyer's closing was an attempt to compensate for a bad mistake that this lawyer made, which was to put Travis McMichael on the stand. Travis McMichael is a disgusting human being, and that's how he comes across. That's how he came across to me, and I imagine that's how he came across to the jurors as well. And it's no coincidence that after Travis testified, uh, reportedly, uh, Mr. Bryan, another one of the defendants, reached out to the prosecution to see if it was too late to cop a deal. It was too late. And what the defense was trying to do with all this talk about duty and the Coast Guard 
responsibility was to rehabilitate Travis McMichael in a way that might have worked if the jury hadn't spent hours and hours listening to him, looking at him, judging him. And maybe there was some gesture by the defense for some kind of racial solidarity between Travis McMichael and the 11 white jurors. But at that point, it was way too late because nobody would want to be associated with this loser. It actually kind of reminded me of when I was a prosecutor in D.C. And the lore among prosecutors was that if it was a case that had a young Black man as a defendant, white jurors would be better than Black jurors especially if it were a a nonviolent case, like a drug case. Black jurors would be more likely to sympathize with that young man and find him not guilty, including by nullifying. But there were a minority of prosecutors, often prosecutors who were Black men themselves, who thought that in a case involving a young African-American defendant, a young black male juror was their best juror because that juror would want to distinguish himself, separate himself from the person who was on trial. And who knows, this is all lawyer's lore. And that wasn't the main line thinking of prosecutors about race and jurors. But I thought about that in this context, because maybe that was the gesture towards nullification that the defense was making. But it might have had the unintended consequence of these 11 white jurors saying, yo, that guy is not like me. That is not my people. And I thought one of the most effective lines from Ms. Donikowski in her rebuttal is when she told those jurors, you are Glenn County. You are Glenn County. Another coded way of of talking about race, I think, but effective, even progressive. And hindsight's always 20-20. If Travis McMichael had walked, obviously I'd be saying it was a great decision to put him on the stand. But we do know that these jurors singled out Travis McMichael in their verdict. He was the only person who was convicted of malice murder. And in terms of the punishment, it doesn't matter a whole lot. When you go in the big house and they ask that proverbial question, what you in for, people don't say felony murder or malice murder. They just say murder. And the sentence that all three defendants will get will be for, for murder. But I do think it's revealing that the jury reserved the most serious charge for Travis McMichael. Before we move on to Laura Hoag's closing, I want to dig a little bit deeper about what it was about Travis McMichael's testimony. And I remember you texted me as it was happening that you found so profoundly disgusting. In other words, you know, he's not your 1960s Klansman, Byron De La Beckwith type, openly racist individual. What was it that you saw that you found disgusting? And what was it that you saw that you think that white jurors from that community would have wanted to disassociate themselves with? What were some of the things that he said that trigger those feelings? 
So you're right. Travis McMichael is not like the hood wearing Byron the Beckwith from the 1950s. He's more like David Duke, the modern Klansman in a suit, except that David Duke is more polished than Travis McMichael. There used to be this great game show on MTV. I can't remember the name, but the conceit was there was something like a a trial at the beginning. And the person who was on trial would walk into the room. And at that point, the jurors were asked, guilty or not guilty? Did he do it or not do it? And they'd have to vote. (laughs) I hope there was a point later where they voted, but it was always so funny that they were expected to render a preliminary verdict just on site. And I don't think any defense attorney or prosecutor would say that's how jurors are in the real world, but I think everybody would agree that impressions are important. And along those lines, Travis McMichael, he looked shifty. He looked nervous. He looked like he was afraid that he might say the wrong thing. And all of those are consistent with being an innocent person. Geez, accused of murder. If you didn't do it, of course, you'd be nervous and concerned about saying the wrong thing. So if the evidence was consistent with Travis McMichael not being guilty, then there might have been an explanation for why he looked like that. But the evidence all went the other way. And then Travis McMichael seemed not to be either forthcoming or truthful about some of the issues that we went over when we talked about his direct examination and his cross-examination. So it's the way he looks. It's the the sum of evidence up to that point. And it's the cross-examination where he's not laid bare because Ms. Donikowski was saving that for her closing and rebuttal, but she scores enough points to make it look like He's not telling the jury the whole truth and that he's a bad dude, that he's describing something that almost sounds like a a lark chasing, running some black guy down on the street. He's not sorry or apologetic for what he did. He's sorry that somebody died. But it's just it's hard to to empathize with a person like this. And I started this conversation by saying, uh, I don't know white folks as well as I thought I did, but I know human beings, right? I have a, a sense of how people respond. And I think that's from my experience as a trial attorney and as a teacher. And I just can't see jurors having any kind of um, positive feelings or identification with this man. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. Join us in our next episode as we conclude our conversation with Paul Butler about the closing arguments in this trial. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracom. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty the killing of Ahmad Arbery.